From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Chives. And I'm Tracy McRae. According to last fall's Mayo Clinic National Health Checkup Survey, Americans believe the most significant health care challenge in the U.S. is cancer. A cancer diagnosis is scary, but some types of cancer are preventable if you take precautions and pay attention to what you eat and drink. On today's program, we'll discuss lifestyle and cancer risk with a Mayo Clinic expert. Some of the things that go together, a poor diet, especially diet high in fats, lack of physical activity, these all act together, clearly increase your risk of multiple different types of cancer. Also on the program, how surgeons are using 3D modeling to prepare for complex procedures. And a conversation with Mayo Clinic's retiring CEO, Dr. John Noseworthy. A new look at cancer in the United States finds that nearly half of cancer deaths are caused by smoking, a poor diet, and other unhealthy behaviors. I mean, it's a lifestyle issue sometimes. A study by the American Cancer Society found that 45% of cancer deaths and about 40% of diagnosed cancer cases could be attributed to what the authors call modifiable risk factors. Risk that's, factors that you can do something about. That's good news, right? Well, I think so. Along with diet and smoking, the study also cited sun exposure and alcohol use as cancer-causing lifestyle choices. Here to discuss lifestyle and cancer risk is Mayo Clinic oncologist Dr. Timothy Moynihan. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Moynihan. It's good to see you again. Great. Always great to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Dr. Moynihan, thank you. So uh, lifestyle choices can certainly affect your chances of getting cancer. Absolutely. There are many things that are modifiable, so you do have some control over the situation. I know many times that people feel fairly helpless in the face of cancer, but there are things you can do to help prevent it, and that's prevention works much better than treatment. So we would and- love to we would love to put me out of business and we'd love to see fewer cases of it. Uh, so anything you do to decrease your risk, I think, is very worth worth worthwhile thinking about. I bet if we were asking people a man-on-the-street type interview, they'd say, well, quit smoking. That's got to be it. But there's got to be more to it than that. It is. But if we look at this particular study, there's a very large study looking at, at many, many uh, cases of cancer. Uh, and the number one risk factor or modifiable risk factor to prevent cancer is stopping smoking. That accounts for about half of the 50% of modifiable risk factors for cancer. So that has a much bigger impact than all of the other ones combined. So smoking still is the number one problem. So getting people to not start would be the the best thing we could do. Uh, And if you do smoke, stopping, because we do know there chance of cancer does decrease as you quit smoking. For folks who are smokers, they maybe think, well, I've done the damage, what's the use? But um, it does improve your chances. Absolutely. We know that even within the first one to two years after stopping smoking, your risk of cancer does decline. Now, it never gets as low as uh, the risk for somebody who never smoked or was never exposed to secondhand smoke, but it clearly goes down, so it does improve your chances. It's not a guarantee, uh, but it, it is very helpful. Are we seeing fewer uh, cases of lung mm-hmm. cancer because the the percentage of people smoking in this country has markedly decreased? Wasn't it nearly 40 or 50 percent a, a few decades ago, and now it's down to, what, 20 percent? So I would assume you're seeing less lung cancer? Or? Absolutely. The numbers have clearly gone down. Oh, good. And, 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 and that does definitely correlate uh, in parallel with the use of cigarette smoke. So men uh, 
peak smoking was a few years ago, and then when when the men stop smoking or decrease their smoking rate, their number, lung cancer uh, cases start dropping within the next several years. Women, uh, unfortunately, have trailed behind that, and and their their uh, decrease is much less. But uh, we're starting to see a trend where wi- women's cancer, lung cancers, are starting to de- decrease now too. Let's talk about you and I, the uh, Midwestern Minnesota winter type people, and mm-hmm. Mr. Hawaiian Tropic over there, who just got back <laughs> from a couple of weeks in paradise. Well, it, would, it was no fun being <laughs> over there, you know, with that ballistic missile coming oh, in from Oh my goodness! But uh, let's talk about skin cancer. <laughs> and it is, if I'm not mistaken, that the cancer that's increasing the most, melanoma. Yes, absolutely. Skin cancer. Skin cancers definitely are in the in, on the increase, and a lot of that is due to uh, sun exposure. And so that is clearly a modifiable risk factor. That doesn't mean you can't be out in the sun. So it's okay to be in Hawaii and it's okay to be out in the sun, but you need to do it sensibly. Uh, try to avoid blistering burns, particularly using using sunblock, using uh, clothing to block your the, the effects of sun. So again, in, in reasonable doses, it's fine. Uh, but uh, there is an excess of skin exposure to that. That still is, is, is a small factor, but it's a very important factor for development of skin cancer. And melanoma can be a very difficult cancer to treat, especially if it spreads. There are some new treatments for it, which we're very fortunate to have. They're showing some very good responses. Be much better served to not get it in the first place. How does alcohol affect cancer risk? Mm-hmm. Alcohol affects multiple different forms of cancer. Uh, it affects liver cancer, stomach cancers, mouth and throat cancer. There are multiple different forms of cancer that it, it, it does affect. It also can act in conjunction with cigarette exposure. The two of those two, those two put together increase your risk more than either one alone. Okay. Uh, but it in and of itself is, is a risk factor for multiple different forms of cancer. So again, in moderation, there's good things to alcohol. Uh, in excess, it's definitely can cause a problem. You say good things to alcohol, you mean the effect on your coronary arteries that coronary. R- reduces your chances of a heart attack? Yes. So so there are some so, some diseases where it can be very helpful. Um, again, uh, when taken in moderation, again, when as in everything in life, when they're taken to excess, there's always problems. All right. Well, that's there's some good news. I mean, Great we thought news. you'd all have all bad news for no, us. Well, but uh, so we've talked about the the sun and the increase in uh, skin cancer. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've talked about smoking. Everybody knows about that uh, relationship. Obesity. Mm-hmm. That's a, a risk factor for certain cancers too, isn't it? Absolutely is, and it does happen to be a bigger risk factor for women than for men. Okay. And it probably has to do with changes in hormonal levels in the body, and that may be more uh, important for women than for men. But there are cancers of the uterus, uh, uh, of the breast, uh, of other things. But also men who are obese do have a higher risk of cancer, too. Uh, Again, it's not as dramatic as for women. But uh, some some of the things things go together. Uh, A poor diet, especially a diet high in fats, which often goes along with obesity, Lack of physical activity, which mm-hmm. often goes along with obesity, uh, a, a sedentary lifestyle, um, uh, these all act together and uh, as a combination uh, clearly increase your risk of multiple different types of cancer. Um, what about uh, diet? Is there such a thing as a cancer prevention diet? Um, there are diets that are associated with a higher risk of getting cancer. We're not sure that there's any one diet that will prevent cancer. Uh, again, diets that are very high in fat, high in uh, meat, especially processed meats, 
meats that are charred or uh, charbroiled, uh, again, if it's excessive in those re- regards, those people do have a higher risk of various types of cancers, stomach cancer, colon cancer, uh, breast cancer, uh, others. Uh, again, in moderation, these things are probably reasonable to have, but it probably shouldn't be every meal you're having processed meats or every meal you're having uh, high-fat content. Uh, we also are learning more about high-fiber diets. They may be protective against colon cancer and other types of cancer. Um, and um, uh, diets that are lacking in fruits and vegetables uh, probably contribute to a higher risk of cancer. What about uh, vitamins and supplements? Are there mm-hmm. any that will truly prevent cancer? Very controversial subject, <laughs> uh, as all of so these subjects that's are. That's why we're asking the Mayo Clinic experts. Absolutely. <laughs> So there are some data that suggest that people with low vitamin D, but again, this is very controversial. If that has an effect, again, it's a very small effect. Okay, um, but there are several studies that suggest that lack of uh, attainment of appropriate balance of vitamins and minerals may have some modest effect. Again, it's nowhere near the impact that either sun exposure or cigarette smoking would have. But there are some there there are some there is a role for a, a good balanced diet that's high in fruits and vegetables. All right, we're talking with Mayo Clinic oncologist Dr. Timothy Moynihan. We've talked about the effect of lifestyle on your risk of getting cancer, and now it's time to debunk some cancer myths. Start with your sugar one. Yeah, eating sugar will make my cancer worse. Is that a myth or a fact, Dr. Moynihan? Um, It is mostly a myth. Uh, There are some interesting uh, observations. It's what's known as the Warburg effect. And this was actually described by Dr. Warburg in the early 1900s. And certainly we do know that cancer cells do use sugar to operate. And uh, they may preferentially use sugar, and they may not have the ability to utilize fats or other sources of energy as well. Whether or not cancers actually grow faster on sugar is unknown in the human body. Again, in, in a culture dish, they may grow a little bit faster. But does that have any effect on actual humans in uh, uh, as we see it? And again, there's not, not good data that supports that. Uh, so we can't come and recommend that you should have a sugar avoidance diet just to try and prevent cancer. Again, there's lots of other health implications of excess sugar intake, uh, diabetes, obesity, heart disease, uh, etc., um, but how much of an effect that ha- actually has on, on cancer is uncertain. So, again, I think the key thing is to make sure there's a balance. There's nothing wrong with having that occasional chocolate chip cookie or bowl of ice cream. You shouldn't have that at every single meal and shouldn't be the only things you eat. If, if that's all you're doing, that's bad for a lot of other reasons. I wouldn't have cancer as the driving reason for me to not eat that type of a diet. And there isn't good evidence that if you do have cancer, you ought to avoid sugar. Right. At this time, no. Again, I think, uh, again, I would strive for the balance rather than the uh, uh, absolute avoidance of one thing or another. All right. Next one. Most cases of cervical cancer are caused by a virus that is sexually transmitted. Myth or matter of fact? I think it is a matter of fact. So uh, it looks like cervical cancer is mostly attributable to what's known as the human papilloma virus. Uh, and virtually uh, 100% of uh Cervical cancer in the United States, you can find traces of the human papillomavirus. All right, but important to also note there's a vaccine for that. There is a vaccine for that, and that's very important. And we very strongly encourage people to get that vaccine, both young boys and young girls. Because although the cervical cancer only affects young girls, 
the way they get it is from young boys. Yeah. And so if we can prevent it in both, uh, the, the boys are the ones who deliver it, the girls are the ones who suffer the consequences. We also know, though, that penile cancer, which does occur, it's fairly rare, but it does occur, is almost always associated with human papillomavirus. Mm-hmm. And so we could prevent that also. Uh, most people are not familiar with the fact that penis cancer does occur. And it can be a very devastating, difficult thing to treat, just as cervical cancer can be very difficult to treat. Don't even want to think about the treatment. Don't even want to think about the treatment. All right, two doses uh, for the cervical cancer vaccine, the HPV vaccine, two yes. doses, boys and girls, before they become sexually active. Yes, we, that, that is the current recommendation. Unfortunately, the uptake on that is only about uh, 40 to 50% of girls get that as recommended, and boys get it even less, even on a 20 to 25% range in spite of these strong recommendations to get that as part of your routine immunizations. Yeah, it is a cancer prevention vaccine. Absolutely. All right, how about this one? Treating cancer with surgery causes it to spread throughout the body. That's old school thinking, isn't it? That is, and as far as we know, that doesn't seem to occur. Now, there are certain individual cases where certain types of an operation can seed a local area, but in general, that uh, most Cancer operations do not cause it to spread. And our best understanding of cancer right now is usually by the time we have found it, even before it's operated on, there probably are microscopic seeds that have already flown off and landed in other parts of the body that then emerge at a later date. Yeah, we do know that surgery will not cause cancer to spread. Nor do we think that exposing cancer to the air will make it grow or spread. There's no reason to think that that happens. All right, next up, cell phones can cause brain cancer. Ah, this is something that's been out there a long time. Uh, And now, uh, one of the things that we notice, we don't think that that truly happens. There are some animal models that suggest that there may be a link. However, if if we think about it, the first license for a cell phone company was for Motorola in 1985. So prior to 1985, there were no cell phones around. There were zero. Now everybody has three cell phones and everybody uses them continuously. <laughs> if cell phones truly caused brain cancers, we would have seen a huge spike in the number of brain cancers. But if we look and compare the number of brain cancers we see today to back in the 1960s, there's no difference. So why aren't we seeing a difference if it was truly causing it? Now, again, that's not the entire story. Uh, We're going to learn more as we go. But as of right now, there is no data in people that suggests that use of cell phones causes brain cancer. How about living in a polluted city is a greater risk for lung cancer? Absolutely. There are more and more data emerging, especially from some of the emerging third world countries, India and other places, where there are very large uh, pollution problems. And we know that those people, non-smokers who live in those highly polluted cities, do have a higher incidence of lung cancer. Mm -hmm. So it's not just smoking. Air pollution does cause it. It's much less of an effect when compared to smokers, but there is clearly some effect there. So, yes, living in a highly polluted area is associated with lung cancer. You know, it's cold here, but the air is pretty clear. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) Breast implants can raise your cancer risk. A a very good question. Um, As a general, we would say no. However, there have been recent reports of a very extraordinarily rare form of breast cancer called large anaplastic uh, lymphoma that seems to be associated with a particular type of of breast implants. Really? This is associated with the type of uh, implants known as textured implants. This is such a rare cancer, though, 
even seeing a few excess cases raises our suspicion. It's not a breast cancer. It's a it's lymphoma. It's actually a lymphoma cancer. that occurs in the breast. Oh, okay. So now uh, lymphomas come from our lymphocytes, which is a type of white blood cell that circulates throughout our whole body. They live a lot in the lymph nodes, but they also still circulate throughout the whole body. So every tissue in your body has some of these lymphocytes. For some reason, there has been this little spike in these kinds of uh, breast lymphomas that are seen in association with this particular type of textured breast implant. Now, again, it's very, very rare, extraordinarily rare, but it seems like there's a little blip of it. But for regular breast cancer, no, there's no link to regular breast cancer, uh, but to the, only to this extraordinarily rare form of breast cancer. Uh, most brain tumors are incurable, myth or matter of fact. Uh, yeah. Um, for adults, the most common type of brain cancers are cancers that started somewhere else in the body and traveled to the brain. So they're usually what's called as metastatic. And those are, in general, incurable. Then this, the most common type of brain cancer that actually starts in the brain is similar to what Senator McCain has. It's mm-hmm. called a glioblastoma. And unfortunately, those types of brain cancers do have to be considered incurable. They can be treated. They can be made better. People live longer with the treatments. Unfortunately, they tend to always recur. So most types of brain cancer, unfortunately, we do have to consider incurable. There are exceptions to that. There are benign types of brain cancer, such as meningiomas and some other things that can be cured, but that's a minority of brain cancers. Is meningioma benign or malignant? Is it cancer or not cancer? There can be both forms of it. The majority are benign and happen to not cause too many problems unless it's in a very unusual location that cannot be reached surgically or by some other means. There are malignant forms of meningioma. These are extraordinarily rare, but they do occur. All right, a lot of myths that we have debunked with the Mayo Clinic expert, oncologist Dr. Timothy Moynihan. Thanks so much for being with us. Always a pleasure to be with you. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, we'll hear how 3D printing is helping surgeons prepare for the OR. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams for the Mayo Clinic News Network. Acute sinusitis is no fun. Here are some things to try before antibiotics. Over-the-counter pain relievers and decongestants may help relieve facial pain and sinus congestion associated with acute sinusitis. Medications that may help include decongestants and pain relievers, such as aspirin, ibuprofen, or acetaminophen. Always use over-the-counter products as directed. If your child becomes infected, check with his or her health care provider to find out what's safe. Now, some home remedies you might want to try include inhaling warm water vapor, applying warm compresses, place warm, damp towels around your nose, cheeks, and eyes to ease facial pain, drink plenty of fluids, use a saline nasal spray, or use a neti pot. A neti pot is a container designed to rinse debris or mucus from your nasal cavity. Neti pots are often available in pharmacies and health food stores, as well as online. Be sure to use filter water and talk to your health care provider to see if nasal rinsing is right for you. Most people with acute sinusitis get better without antibiotics. However, if your symptoms are severe or last longer than a few days, talk to your health care provider. And now let's talk about the flu and myths surrounding it. Every influenza season, millions of Americans decide to skip the flu shot based on false information. 
Dr. Gregory Poland, director of Mayo Clinic's Vaccine Research Group, is one of the world's leading experts on vaccines and has the facts that stand up to the myths. Influenza myth number one, the flu is like a cold. It'll make you feel awful, but it isn't really harmful. Fact, Dr. Poland says in the U.S. alone, last year, 80,000 Americans died from influenza and its complications, and almost a million were hospitalized. The complications are the really dangerous part. Dr. Poland says influenza may lead to pneumonia, meningitis, heart attacks, and complications for people with diabetes. Myth number two, I always get the flu from the flu shot. Fact, It is impossible to get influenza from the vaccine, Dr. Poland says. He adds that it's not uncommon for people to coincidentally get an upper respiratory infection in the weeks after getting a flu shot and assume it's connected. But studies have proven your odds of getting that minor upper respiratory infection from other viruses are identical whether you get the flu shot or not. So you might as well protect yourself from the more serious influenza. And flu myth number three, science still doesn't know enough about vaccines to know if they're safe. Fact, Dr. Poland says vaccines are among the safest and most studied areas of modern medicine. It takes more study and research to get a vaccine approved than it does for an over-the-counter headache medicine, such as acetaminophen or ibuprofen. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. In 2008, when Mayo Clinic doctors were planning the separation of conjoined twins, the surgeons asked the Department of Radiology to produce a 3D model of the baby's shared liver. Now, because 3D models are life-size and patient-specific, Surgeons are able to hold and rotate the model in their in their hands, and they get a better sense of how they need to position the patient on the table when they're doing the operation, where they can make their cuts, and whether or not there might be different approaches to the problem that they hadn't even thought of or didn't think were possible when they were studying the case in only two dimensions. The rest, as they say, is history. The 3D anatomical modeling program at Mayo Clinic has grown exponentially over the past eight years, and one area where 3D modeling is now used extensively is to prepare surgeons and patients for pediatric airway surgery. Here to discuss 3D modeling is Mayo Clinic ENT specialist, Dr. Karthik Balakrishnan. Welcome back to the program. It's good to see you again, Dr. Balakrishnan. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, thanks so much for being here. So this, the 3D modeling, it, it's actually been a huge advance uh, in terms of helping for surgical planning. Massive advance, yes. I mean, even the best of us have a hard time converting two-dimensional slices from a CT scan or an MRI into a 3D model in our heads and not losing detail. And this takes that out of our hands and makes us actually able to hold a physical object that we can spin around, we can use to teach patients, we can use to talk to each other. Interestingly, it often turns up little quirks of the patient's anatomy that we might not have noticed on the 2D that actually change the course of the surgery. So we've went from one dimension, an Mm X-ray, two dimensions, CT scanning and MRI scan, and now we've actually got a model, a 3D model. Pretty incredible, isn't it? It's really amazing. And for a while, there were these virtual 3D models that were reconstructed on the computer, but even those, it's not the same. If I can hold this and change my line of sight and see what my approach is going to be to a structure, uh, that's invaluable. And there are actually some surgeons who are making these models to practice new or complex procedures before they actually do it on the live patient as well. First of all, 
if there are people listening who don't know what a 3D printer is, let's yes, go there. Absolutely. So 3D printing has become popular in general society as well. Um, there are a lot of folks using those to 3D print everything from gifts to coffee coasters to whatever else. But Ooh, I um, have a keychain at my house made by my son. There you go. <laughs> what it is, is it basically lays down layers of some kind of polymer or plastic that then harden and you send the 3D printing machine a data file that tells it what each layer of that object should look like and it stacks them up. And so since we are here on the radio and a lot of people cannot see this in front of you actually looks like the lower part of a jaw and the upper uh-huh. part of a chest is that a child correct this is, this is a young man in his late teens and you can compare it to this one which is a life-size model of another patient who was about seven months old yeah and that fits right in the palm of your hand exactly mm-hmm. um, so so the folks who run the 3d printing lab were kind enough to print me one in a soft material so i could actually practice how I was going to reconstruct this windpipe and actually sew it to see how things would come together. That has got to be crazy helpful for the patient immensely. It's incredible. It's great for patient education and for surgeon education. I mean, I'll tell you, before we had this option, I would go to the meat locker north of the city and get pig tracheas because I had no other way to practice some of these really complex things. And now I don't have to go to the meat locker. Um, But that trachea looks like it's been smashed. Yes. What happened there? So this patient had a disorder where his trachea was both compressed and collapsed. And so it became... Makes it a little tough to breathe, doesn't it? It's very tough. And he had been like this for most of his life. And so um, the surgery that we were planning to do for him was one that's been done successfully only at one other location. And so we wanted to prepare for it as well as we could. And it really kind of paid off. Why is it so difficult? Isn't there such a thing as a tracheal transplant where you can take out that segment and put in a new one? Great question. Yes, that is something that's in development, but it's still in the very early stages and has such long-term implications for the patient. Whereas here, based on using these 3D models and our knowledge of the anatomy, we were actually able to just remove the bad segment and put the good segment back together using his own tissue, which is a much easier thing for him to recover from. Because children and infants are smaller, is this even more helpful the smaller a patient is, or is it just helpful all the way around? It's kind of helpful all the way around. And, you know, to give you an example, so for for us, we have these models printed, you know, maybe once a month, once every couple months when we have a really complicated surgery. Some of our head and neck reconstructive con- surgeons, when they're reconstructing a patient after a cancer surgery, they print it for every single patient just routinely. So it's mm-hmm. become so standard in some practices here at Mayo that every patient gets one. You uh, talked about using this for tracheal or airway surgery. What else have you used it for? So we've used it for airway management in patients with very complex spine problems, which interestingly, this teenage patient also had. So for those of you watching on YouTube, you can see on the back here, there's these purple stripes. Those are spine hardware. Uh, he had a very complicated spine surgery here at Mayo prior to our doing his airway surgery. And we had to manage his airway for the spine surgery. And so we use these to help plan that as well. Then for this young man in particular, because of quirks of his anatomy and the way his spine was and everything, getting to his trachea to do the reconstruction was potentially going to be incredibly dangerous. And so having the 3D model helped me to work with Dr. Duraney from cardiothoracic surgery. Uh, and we could work together to plan how we were going to get there and what we would need to do well before we ever actually started working on the patient. How long does it take? And do you know how much it costs? Yeah, so a small model like this young baby's model that I'm holding in my hand might take four to six hours. A simple tubular model like the trachea you're holding, Dr. Shives, might take something even less. A very large, more complex model with several colors or for a larger patient might take up to 24 hours. The thing that really takes time is the 
planning beforehand. The arteries are red and the veins are blue. Pretty amazing. Right. <laughs> and so where is this heading in the future? What's 3D printing going to so, be used for? In addition to this, we're actually looking at 3D printing things to be implanted into patients. So 3D printing custom endotracheal tubes, 3D printing stents, 3D printing implants into, so that can be used to replace body parts, all of those things. 3D modeling and how it can help your surgeon do a better job. We've been with ear, nose, and throat specialist, Dr. Karthik Balakrishnan. Thanks so much for being with us. Amazing stuff. Oh, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Coming up, a conversation with Mayo Clinic's retiring CEO, Dr. John Noseworthy. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. At the end of 2018, Mayo Clinic President and CEO Dr. John Noseworthy is stepping down after nine years in the leadership role and 28 years at Mayo Clinic. Under Dr. Noseworthy's leadership, Mayo Clinic has expanded and increased its national visibility and is now ranked as the number one hospital in the country by U.S. News and World Report. During, Congratulations, yeah, Mayo Clinic. Absolutely. During this, uh, his tenure, Dr. Noseworthy led the Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville, Arizona, and Mayo Clinic Health Systems from a group of separate clinics and hospitals to a single integrated organization focused on Mayo's mission, the needs of the patient come first. And we're delighted to have him here with us today. Dr. John Noseworthy, welcome to the program. Good morning, Tracy. Good morning, Tom. Dr. Noseworthy, nice to have you. Congratulations Thanks. on a stellar career. Thank you very much. Was it a difficult decision to retire? No, it wasn't, in a sense, uh, because we have a rotational leadership uh, tradition at Mayo Clinic. It was more about the timing. Um, the trustees asked me to stay on an extra year so we could do the epic installation and so on. I had a, I have a great bench of uh, leaders ready to take the role. And we usually rotate our leaders every seven to ten years, something like that. So, uh, retiring is a different, is, that's a different decision, but leaving the CEO role was, uh, was, uh, the, the timing's good. Explain that rotational leadership model and how it's different than most places. So at Mayo Clinic, physician leadership assignments, department chairs, deans, that sort of thing, have moved to be a basically a four-year term with a, with a renewable once. So it's you're, if you're doing a good job, you'll be in the job about eight years. In that time, you're supposed to be grooming successors so that the institution will move forward. The CEO role is a little is less defined than that. It's an annual renewable term, basically. You have an annual review. If you're doing good work, you're asked to stay another year. But traditionally, uh, the person's been in that role six to ten years kind of thing. Uh, so the timing was about right. Looking back on it, there had to be some, some difficult times, some challenging times, some difficult decisions that you had to make. Can you share any of those with us? Of course. I think the most, the, the, the biggest overall decision that the organization needed to make was did we need to make change or not? Mm-hmm. Mayo is a, has been a fine organization forever. The patient care is outstanding, research, education, and so on. But with the uncertainty of the external environment, uh, the NIH, insurance companies, uh, non-traditional providers getting into the space, we needed to make some changes to be more focused on our outcomes and more focused on our financial performance. And we just did. Uh, We needed to have sufficient income at the end of the year to invest in research, to take up the slack where the NIH budget was flat and to make sure that we were able to fund our pension and fund our growth. And and making a change of that magnitude in a highly successful organization like Mayo is difficult because not everyone in the in the practice or in, in the institution could see the writing on the wall. Uh, leaders get to see that because that's what we're supposed to do, and we could see that things needed to change. 
we've made a lot of change. It's been very successful. It's been hard on the staff, but I think we're at the stage where we know our values are strong, our performance is stronger, uh, and that allows us to do good work. And what happened at Mayo basically, Tom, was once people realized where we needed to go and realized that we were going to do this together and always keep our values right in front of us, that we could do this change and that the Mayo brothers would have done it to be, to be strong, uh, then we started to make the change, and it's been very, it's been good. But it was, that degree of change was tough. So explain to our listeners, it, it's hard uh, for many people to understand. This is a nonprofit institution. Correct. You just mentioned the fact that we make a profit. Yep. Explain how that works. Absolutely. What so we do with that profit. Yeah. So uh, a, a non a profit organization still has to have income at the end of the year. That is to say, the revenues have to exceed the expenses. You have to have some money left over at the end of the year. To invest in the future, not non-for-profit healthcare organizations use that income to invest in education, research, and the staff. Uh, and the fourth component of that that we do and many do is invest in the community. And so at the end, of the, you have to make some money at the end of the year to keep the place growing, to keep recruiting good people, and to support the community. And, and Mayo Clinic has always been very community focused, and we invest heavily in the community, so the communities in which we work are strong. So not-for-profits invest in education, research, practice, and the community. It's the way that the Mayo brothers set it up. It's the way they set up, and there have never been dividends, there have never been bonuses. Um, that's just the way we are as a not-for-profit. One of the things that I've heard you talk about during our tenure is that we need to work differently. What exactly did, do you mean by that? What we said to the staff back in 2009-2010, Tom, was uh, if we were in the worst recession in 70 years in the United States, people were losing their jobs all over the place in healthcare and beyond that. And many of our staffs husbands, wives, uncles, nieces, whatever, were losing their jobs. And so we made a, we asked the staff to listen up. We'll make a pledge to you. We will do our very best to make sure that nobody loses their jobs. But for that, we need you to think about working differently. And that is to say, do we, how are, what are the processes of how we care for patients, how we do the administrative work, how we do our research? All of that involves people, and processes and technology, are we doing it in an efficient way? Are we getting the answer quickly, safely, and so on? Or is there some bureaucratic steps in there that don't add value? The other thing we did when we moved from a series of holding companies to a single operating company was the so-called back office side, the business end of Mayo, supply chain, revenue cycle, human resources, legal, billing, all that sort of thing. We had four or five of all of those as opposed to a consolidated organization. And so we went to a shared service model, which meant all the business was consolidated, and we basically have one legal department for all of the sites. And that meant that those people, there were too many people in the organization. And at Mayo, we're fortunate because we have such a broad um, range of talented people and jobs to fill that the majority of our folks were able to migrate to a different job at Mayo, not lose their job. Um, but that that helped us. The other thing that was very different, Tom, is we had a, a hiring freeze, and you'll remember that. We basically said we're not going to hire people unless there's a real exceptional need. We're going to take our people that we currently employ and say, who could do this job? There's a job opening over here. Could we? And, and just by slowing down or or almost stopping our hiring for a couple of years. That ex- extra ex- expense basically flattened that line, the, rev- the growth of the revenue line, 
the, pardon me, of the expense line, the revenue line continued to grow, and the difference between how much we were earning and how much we were spending, that gap grew, and that gave us income to invest in the things we needed to do to get Mayo stronger for the future. Payroll certainly the biggest expense. Seventy percent. Seventy percent. What was the most rewarding part of, of your job? What will you remember and look back at and and say, you know, that that was a great part of of what I did or or what I experienced as CEO? I think it's exactly the same as I would project. You are going to be thinking when you retire, Tom, is you're going to remember what the staff did. And every the CEO has a wonderful opportunity. I get to see what everybody's doing all across this magnificent institution, across our 65,000 employees, across all the sites, some of the work we're doing internationally. You've been watching? <laughs> I've been watching you, Tom. But what you know, when you see what our staff do, and a day doesn't go by that I don't hear stories from nurses, from social workers, from researchers, from surgeons, about what what they did to meet the needs of those patients. I mean, that's that just is adrenaline every day. It, it's just the heroism, the courage, the miracles that happen every day at Mayo Clinic. That's that just keeps you going. Can you give us two cents on affordable health care? Can it be done? So, thanks. That's a tough question, Tracy. It has to be done. So the answer is yes. Uh, we don't know how to do it in the United States, to be honest, and. I've said this publicly, um, I'll say it again. Um, having a sustainable, affordable, high-quality health care system should be a priority of the United States of America. It isn't a priority at the moment. It just isn't. We haven't decided that we want to build a sustainable, affordable, high-quality health care system that's informed by research, and so our patients, our citizens, regardless of their socioeconomic status, can afford health care, and can get cutting-edge care. We haven't done that. Other countries are, have put more of an investment in that than we have, but we haven't. And so there are huge gaps, and it's an adult conversation. It's going to take people from all different sectors, not just physicians and nurses, but patients, pharmaceutical companies, insurance companies, life science companies, device companies, and the government, the insurers. We're going to have to look at the education system in the country. How do we, how do we educate people about their health? How do we transport people from inner city to the suburbs and so on? All those things weigh in to the health of the country. And and we're tied to a two-year election cycle. So we flip over here with a quick answer here, a quick answer there. That was a bad idea. We have a better idea. There, it's This is a tough puzzle. It's worth solving. And I hope the country, and I'm sure it will, eventually says, we've got to get this fixed. And when that's the case, it's going to take some time. And we will get there. Your successor is Dr. Faruja, who's basically exactly like you. I mean, the mold is not going to be broken at all. <laughs> well, I'm we'll, kidding. We'll see. <laughs> I'm kidding. So tell we're, us about Dr. Faruja. Well, Dr. Faruja is, uh, he's been at Mayo Clinic for 30 years. Yes. He's quite a bit younger than me. Um, uh, he's a gastroenterologist. He's a scientist. He's an entrepreneur and a business person. Uh, he's high energy. Um, he's highly intelligent. He's respectful and kind and thoughtful, and he's an innovator. He's a massive innovator. He has a wonderful brain and a wonderful way of solving complex problems. He knows Mayo very well. He's very respectful of our traditions. He has lots of energy, and he wears fancy colored socks. And we've had this raging battle that I wear black socks, but, but he's, he's, he's going to do a wonderful job, and uh, he's, he knows and loves Mayo, 
and our staff will rally around him, and it'll be a really fun next next uh, set of changes. Yeah, with those socks, he's with it. You're not. Uh, so you got that right. <laughs> the guys with the black socks, it's where it's time for us to go. <laughs> All right, you know, it's a fabulous institution, and you have certainly contributed to that for, for nine wonderful years. Again, congratulations Thanks on your time. career, and appreciate having you on the program. Now, Thank hold on so just a second, because you're both retiring, so I want to know who's the better golfer, because I suspect you guys will be golfing together this spring. <laughs> It's not. Uh, there's not much to talk about there. Tom is the better golfer. There's no question about it. You know, I'm not sure about that. But here's what we'll do. We'll have the Noseworthy Shives Challenge match Ooh. play in June, and I'll report back. Okay, good. <laughs> I'll look forward to hearing about that. And it'll probably be a tie okay. if we make it around 18 holes. <laughs> All right, we've been talking to Dr. John Noseworthy. He is retiring as president and CEO of the Mayo Clinic. Dr. Noseworthy, again, thanks for being with us. Thank you, Tom. Thanks, Tracy. And that's our program for this week. Happy New Year. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice. And you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, newsnetwork.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.